Good afternoon, everybody, and thank you for joining the latest uh, coronavirus press conference. Yesterday afternoon, I was briefed on the latest data that shows the virus spreading uh, more rapidly in London, the southeast and the east of England than would be expected, given the tough restrictions that are already in place. And I also received an explanation for why the virus is spreading more rapidly in these areas. It seems that the spread is now being driven by the new variant of the virus. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson speaks to his nation and the world on December 19th, 2020, after a sudden surge in coronavirus cases has everyone on high alert. The variant is called B117, and health officials in dozens of countries, including Canada, have now identified cases as well. Those behind it, the researchers say the variant is hugely more transmissible uh, than the previous version of coronavirus. Cancelled Christmas plans, chaos at the ports, and cut off from much of the EU as the United Kingdom battles a new strain of the coronavirus. Europe shuts its doors to the UK as fears grow over the spread of a new variant of coronavirus. I'm live at the port of Dover where 10,000 lorries pass through here every day. But not today, the sign behind me says it all. French borders closed. I'm Olalengi in Newark, New Jersey, where flights continue to arrive from London, leaving New York Governor Andrew Cuomo sounding the alarm. This is another disaster waiting to happen. Why are we doing nothing? And we assume it's in the United States now? You know, you have to make that assumption. When we start to look for it, we're going to find it. A new strain of the coronavirus first discovered in Britain and thought to be more contagious has been found in the U.S. for the first time. Officials say the patient is a man in his 20s who lives in rural Colorado and has no recent travel history. There is a new strain of the virus that causes COVID-19. What does it mean? This is a Petri dish side dish, and today we're going to learn about this new COVID strain that has the whole world on edge. A virologist at Texas Biomedical Research Institute in San Antonio, Dr. Ricardo Carillon, sits down with us to talk about it. In early December, Brits were preparing for Christmas. A pandemic Christmas, to be sure, but also a Christmas in which they could celebrate the vaccines that meant a possible end to all of this sooner than later. And restrictions would be eased for the holiday. Leaders of the four UK nations agreed that people in up to three households would be able to meet up and mix for five days from December 23rd to the 27th. People in these households could spend time together inside homes, places of worship and outside, and travel restrictions would be eased so families could gather in other parts of the UK. It all seemed like it would be very merry indeed, relatively speaking. The leaders admitted it could not be a, quote, normal Christmas, but family and friends would be able to enjoy each other's company in person. But silently, in the southeast corner of England, in a county called Kent, just outside of London, something sinister was happening. Despite a November lockdown, new COVID cases were rising rapidly. Everywhere else, cases seemed to be under control, but in Kent, they were surging. What was going on? The virus had changed. 
The B117 variant was first reported in the United Kingdom on December 14th. Since then, it's become the dominant strain in all of England, and more than 30 countries, including the United States, have now detected the variant. And that relaxed British Christmas with three households getting together and having dinner and going to church, it was canceled. And then, after a stunning year-end spike in infections, hospitalizations, and deaths, Prime Minister Johnson announced a strict national lockdown that he hoped would be tough enough to contain this new variant. You may only leave home for limited reasons permitted in law, such as to shop for essentials, to work if you absolutely cannot work from home, to exercise, to seek medical assistance, or to escape domestic abuse. Johnson said the speed with which this variant has spread is both frustrating and alarming. The number of deaths in the UK had increased by 20% in just a week. So let's take a close look at this variant and talk to virologist Ricardo Carrion. We first talked to Carrion in our first episode of this podcast back in March. We needed an expert to tell us exactly what this novel coronavirus was and how it worked. He certainly is that. He spent his career working with famously deadly viruses like Ebola and Marburg. But early last year, like most every other infectious diseases expert in the world, Carrion started focusing solely on this novel coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2 the virus that causes COVID-19. Now we need him to tell us what's going on with this mutation. So I zoomed him up for a chat. Dr. Ketion, coronaviruses are RNA viruses. Of course, RNA stands for ribonucleic acid and it's present in all living cells. And in RNA viruses, RNA, not DNA, contains the virus's genetic information. RNA is basically the brains behind the whole viral operation. It tells the virus what to do. And one thing RNA viruses do is mutate, right? A lot. It's a thing they're known for. They're just always changing. So this isn't the first mutation of this pandemic, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, one of the, I think during one of our last talks, we talked about a, a new mutation that emerged in Europe and uh, it was first detected in January. And by June, that was the predominant variant throughout the whole globe. So you're talking about the world having a new virus variant in less than six months or so. So with RNA viruses, mutations are to be expected and usually aren't worth noting. So a, a coronavirus, as you mentioned, is an RNA uh, virus. And um, when it replicates, it, it's very sloppy. So you have a higher rate of mutations, meaning that when uh, a virus enters a cell and replicates more of itself, uh, there's, they're not going to be authentically identical. There can be differences in those cells. And, and as time passes, the, the differences will accumulate some variants may emerge that are uh, not compatible with the virus surviving. So automatically that, that mutation will no, no longer be propagated. Others confer some sort of advantage on the virus and it allows it to replicate uh, more efficiently or, or in better ways. One thing you taught me in our first conversation is that RNA viruses mutate usually to become less dangerous. They attenuate as you said. But virologists like you are watching for mutations that make it, as you said there, more efficient. 
So what exactly are you looking for? So there's three concerns about a variant. Well, one being uh, the ability to infect people at a higher rate, so transmissibility. The second would be being able to evade countermeasures. So being able to evade, in this case, medical countermeasures like vaccines or therapies. And the third one is to evade another countermeasure, with, which is diagnostics. So is a mutation as such that you'll no longer be able to detect this mutant? So that, that's a concern as well. So um, for in this case, in, in the UK, uh, there was concern early on that you'd be able to evade some detection diagnostic system. However, uh, they've been able to demonstrate that indeed the, the test that was widely used in, in the UK is detecting this variant. If you can imagine if half the, the virus is a mutation that can evade um, the detection system and all of a sudden you get an influx of morbidity or death, the fact is that you might be off by 50% of how many people are sick or even more if you're if now you're not able to detect it. So those are the three things. And in the case of this virus, um, they're able to detect it. Yeah, I follow a lot of scientists on Twitter who breathe a huge collective sigh of relief when it was confirmed that the UK's regular COVID test still could detect the virus with the mutation. So, so why has this particular mutation gotten the world's attention? Uh, they think there might be increased transmissibility. And it doesn't appear to be increased morbidity, but the actual tests are being un undergoing now. Uh, so again, uh, that's what we're concerned about, these variants and what can potentially happen. But we've been able to lock out. And since they're all happening in the same region, and the ones looked at to date don't cause, like I mentioned before, increased morbidity, then uh, and don't evade those medical countermeasures, I think we're still on a good track to being able to defeat this uh, eventually. But like you said, it does seem to be more transmissible. According to a recent paper from Imperial College in London, B117 spreads much more quickly and easily than the older predominant strain of the virus. Experts have estimated it could be 50 to 70% more transmissible. So what I want to know is when scientists like you say this variant is more easily transmissible or more contagious, what do you mean? How is it more contagious? The way that it enters the cell, uh, and based on animal studies, it means that it's able to produce higher amounts of the, the virus. So for instance, if you're shedding from your nose a million copies of the virus, uh, this mutation might increase the efficiency of replication. So now you're doing 100 million, maybe a billion. So you have more of it coming out. Uh, so we do, in other, other experiments, we do dose ranging studies where you increase or decrease the amount of virus and you see how much you need to get uh, somebody sick and what's the cutoff point is it. So when you have more virus, it makes sense that uh, you're more likely to infect more efficiently. So you have more, more potential to enter a cell and cause disease. So it looks like you're not going to get any more morbidity associated with it. But if you're in a room with so many people without masks, the chances of you infecting these people uh, would increase. And maybe the more people, the more people in the room, you'll infect more people. 
I think that when some people hear that it's become more contagious, they might wonder if that means their masks are now useless, like the virus has maybe developed some sort of super strength to power through masks or stay infectious in the air for much longer. Or maybe now we really should start sanitizing our mail, which we have been assured we don't need to do. So this mutation hasn't made this virus able to, for example, breach masks, right? Right. Yeah. So it's the same virus. It doesn't change. We're talking about small changes. There's certain areas of the, the genome that are conserved. So if you change those regions too much, then you have a virus that can no longer replicate. So a lot of these mutations that may emerge die out because they just can't exist. So uh, these small changes aren't going to make it, you know, now have some sort of anti-mask factor that can enter masks. It hasn't even been a month since this variant was officially reported in the UK, and now it's been confirmed in dozens of countries and in a handful of states in the U.S. Because of how rapidly it's spread outside the U.S., and because here in the U.S. we're not doing a great job at this type of surveillance where we sequence the genomes of the virus infecting folks so we know exactly what strain we're dealing with, do you think it's more widespread in the U.S. than our current testing might indicate? I would I would think that it's in uh, areas where there's a lot of travel, of course, you know, and you would you would expect like, you know, California being one place and these other areas, those states that have a lot of activity probably do have have the virus, the new variant there. So let's talk about treatments and vaccines. I know you and your colleagues at Texas Biomed worked with Regeneron on that monoclonal antibody cocktail that the president credits with his recovery from COVID. But with the virus changing, people, I think, worry that these treatments and vaccines that we've all been really pinning our hopes on might be rendered useless. So let's start with treatments like the monoclonal antibody cocktail. This cocktail contains synthetic antibodies. Antibodies, of course, being one of the battalions of soldiers our immune system uses to fight and kill infectious invaders like viruses. So could this or other mutations outsmart this medicine by becoming resistant to or just evading these antibodies? In that instance, uh, they have a combination of antibodies. And the reason why it's the combination is to avoid a virus being able to uh, evade it. So the idea would be that if it could evade one of these antibodies, it couldn't evade the other one. Now, there's some that are, can escape some monoclonal antibodies. But as I mentioned, again, a monoclonal antibody is a single antibody. If you use in combination, uh, then although it escapes one, the other one is going to, to uh, target it and knock it out. Okay, so because it's a cocktail with two different antibodies, both of which target different parts of that famous spike protein that the virus uses to get into our cells, the hope is if the virus manages to escape from one of them, the other will take it out. Got it. Okay, so that actually sounds like good news for the vaccines too, right? Because they work kind of the same way, except rather than using synthetic antibodies to target what you sciencey types call the receptor binding domain on that spike protein, the vaccines actually teach our immune systems to make our own antibodies to target that area of the COVID virus spike protein. So targeting that receptor binding domain is something that's important because if it can't get into the cell, it can't replicate. Uh, and again, the way that uh, these mRNA vaccines, others have been designed is to amplify 
antibodies to that region to prevent these escapes. So that means... It seems like it's not going to be a big deal from the standpoint the vaccines we developed are probably still going to be effective. The therapies that have been developed will probably still be effective. Okay, good. So um, I mentioned in the beginning of the show that you are our first expert on Petri Dish on our first show more than 30 episodes ago. And you and your colleagues and pretty much every scientist on the planet have been working basically around the clock to fight this pandemic for nearly a year now. So I wonder how you're doing. This pandemic does not let up. I think we're all tired, right? I mean, um, we have about 100 people at the Institute that are contributing to coronavirus research. Uh, But I think we have the ability to do something, you know, actually do something about this uh, virus. And I think that's what energizes us. Because when we get news of a Pfizer uh, vaccine being approved and we worked on that, or Regeneron being approved and we worked on that, Novavax having clinical trial start and we worked on that, we know we're making a direct impact. So despite the long hours, long days, uh, be frustrated with each other because of the fact that, you know, we can't see anybody without a mask and that we're working very long hours, uh, these successes help to give us more energy uh, towards the goal. And we see that the end is near now. You know, we see the uh, efforts that we're put in and others put in are paying off. Now, after this is done, I'm sure myself and everybody on my team is going to take a couple of weeks off to just catch up on our sleep. But again, it's a very exciting to be able to, to have a role in what's going on right now. Oh, we're all going to get caught up on our sleep, Dr. Catione. Thank you so much for everything. This is a plot twist, right? Just as that light at the end of the tunnel was getting bright enough to start basking in, boom, mutation, more contagious COVID. Now the light is still there and it's getting closer every time someone gets a shot of vaccine in their arm, but this has certainly complicated what we hope will be the final act of this pandemic. Why? because more contagious COVID is exactly what we don't need when hospitals across the country are already buckling under the strain of trying to care for COVID patients. When, according to the COVID Tracking Project, just under 125,000 Americans are already in the hospital with this disease. When approaching 350,000 Americans have already died from this virus when thousands of Americans are already dying every day. No, this strain does not seem to be more deadly in and of itself, but more transmissible means more infections, and more infections mean more deaths. And when so many hospitals across the country are already at capacity and starting to experience an increase in cases from holiday gatherings, an additional surge A variant surge? Imagine that. It's the stuff of nightmares. It would mean turning sick or injured people away from the hospitals. It would mean rationing care, including ventilators, for people in the hospital. It would mean pushing healthcare workers well beyond their limits. I hope that knowing people are getting vaccinated right now, today, 
will give most of us the strength and fortitude to redouble our efforts now and keep fighting for just a little bit longer. I know (laughs) we're tired of it. Pandemic fatigue is a thing and it's hard. But it's more important now than ever to make choices that protect ourselves, our families, our healthcare workers, and our communities. This episode of Petri Dish, Side Dish, was produced by me. Our sound designer is Jacob Rosati. Our executive producer is Fernanda Camarena. TPR's news director is Dan Katz. Mark Mehmet is managing editor of the Texas Newsroom. This podcast is a production of TPR and the Texas Newsroom, a collaboration between public radio stations across Texas and NPR. I'm Bonnie Petrie. Talk to you soon.